Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast of the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, politics moves fast these days. By the time you listen to this, we might have done a deal with Brussels, or we might not. Theresa May might still be Prime Minister. Or might not. Jeremy Corbyn might have successfully explained Labour's position on Brexit. Or might not. But where we are right now, all of this is in the balance. Trying to make sense of it all, this week I'm joined by Lucy Fisher, Times Senior Political Correspondent, who'll tell us what is going on with the latest Labour purge. Gideon Skinner, Head of Political Research at the pollsters Ipsos Moy, reveals the five political tribes in Britain today. But first, Matthew O'Toole, a former Number 10 Brexit spokesman, argues Ireland was always going to be the big... Brexit sticking point. The island of Ireland and its complications have always been at the centre of Brexit. It's just that lots of people didn't realise it. This week's events have rammed at home. To do a deal with the EU, Britain will have to engage with its complex history with the island next door. Now, Matthew, just explain to us, first of all, what your job was when you were in number 10. Um, and once you've explained it, I think we'll probably realise why you decided to leave. But what was your job when you were at number 10? So, um, Matt, I was the chief press officer on first Europe before the referendum, arguing to stay in, and then and then Brexit post the referendum. So um, so I kind of saw it from, from both sides, through the looking glass, as it were. And there's, there's always been sort of, at various times, different issues have blown up, whether it's going to be the divorce bill, whether it's going to be citizens' rights, there was going to be the big sticking point. And what we've discovered this week is that it's Ireland. From your perspective, do you think that was always going to be the case? Is it just the nature of Irish politics, which in the end was going to be this big spanner in the works? I think, in truth, it was always going to be you know, a significant challenge. It was always going to be a big problem. I think some of us thought that and kind of isolated that before the referendum, largely because the European Union, there were lots of people possibly in Britain hadn't quite clocked it. And this is understandable. And I'm not, you know, you would seek to, to, to blame people for this, didn't quite realise the extent to which the relationships within the European Union kind of helped underpin the settlement in Northern Ireland and across the island. But things did get more complicated after the election. Clearly, the fact that you know the DUP are in a supply and confidence arrangement adds a layer of complexity to the negotiations that I'm sure some people would uh, rather hadn't been added. And when you were in number 10 before the referendum, the Irish issue didn't play a, that big a part in the referendum campaign, certainly not sort of in England. Yeah. Were there efforts to do that? I think in truth, there there was a kind of um, a sense that people were going to make a judgment based on a relatively narrow set of economic propositions to do with whether they would be better or worse as a result of leaving the European Union. Now, you can argue that that campaign didn't work, but I think in in one sense, based on kind of polling data and you know political intelligence before the referendum, it wasn't a it wasn't a wrong or silly judgment to make. It's just that from the perspective of some of us who were deeply emotionally engaged with the complexity of things in Ireland, both in Northern Ireland and in the Republic, actually 
it was arguable people, particularly in England, should have had some of this stuff put in front of them. They should have been able to engage a little bit more with the, the depth of complexity, not just for its own sake, but because actually it, it, it looks like it could, you know, prevent the UK or get in the way of the UK doing the deal that the government wants to do at the minute. And Gideon, from a sort of public opinion point of view, how sort of salient is the Irish issue to people outside Ireland or Northern Ireland? Because I suppose until something like we've seen this week where suddenly Irish politics flares up as a big issue, if there had been a lot of focus on, well, what are we going to do about the Northern Ireland border during the referendum campaign, would that have resonated outside the island? Uh, well, it might have done, but it it didn't. I mean, I yeah. think you're right. It's one of those issues where you you see in our trackers, it will it will it will respond to events, but as a as a long term underlying concern, it, it's not up there. And if you look at the issues that people were talking about over the the referendum campaign and what they were worried about, it was immigration. Obviously, it was about the impact of of the economy, and you know, sovereignty comes up, but very much in a context of. Britain's wanting to reclaim their sovereignty and the United Kingdom wanting to reclaim their sovereignty from the EU rather than rather than the details of the Northern Irish situation and the implications there. At least from your point of view, when you were when you were watching what was unfolding in Brussels on Monday, there was a sense in the morning that Brussels was very optimistic and Downing Street was sort of trying to play down expectations. And then as sort of the date went on, Downing Street were becoming more optimistic and it all, and then it all sort of fell apart at lunchtime when it turned out that Theresa May hadn't got Arlene Foster on board. So to what extent do you think that it was, I'm not going to say orchestrated, because I'm not sure that Downing Street is necessarily, <laughs> Downing Street operations that sophisticated, but was this always sort of slightly inevitable that Arlene Foster had to have a point during this process where she was seen to put her foot down, but ultimately it's not a sort of fatal falling out? From my reading of, of the complete chaos and, and briefing and counter-briefing within government departments, let alone when you look at the sort of counter-briefing going on and contradictions coming out of Brussels yesterday, I don't think that, that what happened was planned. Of course, you're right, Arlene Foster does have to play to her domestic audience, but of course the DUP wouldn't have quite the leverage they do if Theresa May hadn't called this <laughs> snap general well, election earlier this any, year. Any leverage at all? It would have had to have been squared with the DUP yeah. being a major Northern Irish party, but they wouldn't have had quite the say that they do. And I think another way in which we have to sort of pin this back on Theresa May again is the fact that the man in number 10 who was the guarantor of that relationship with the DUP, the former chief whip Gavin Williamson, she moved him out of that key position. We've got this sort of newbie, Julian Smith, now in the chair, doesn't have the same kind of level of, of relationship with the DUP. So I think that the PM has to kind of, um, we have to look at her judgment in moving him out of that position when, as Matthew has said, you know, the Irish question was always going to be a key sticking point in the Brexit deal. And just one further thing to add, I mean, this is not necessarily Theresa May's fault, but but another key person um, around her, key ally, who was smoothing over the relationship with the DUP was, of course, Damien Green, and him having to keep a low profile as he's still under investigation by the Cabinet Office uh, around the Pestminster scandal means that it just it feels very, very shaky at the moment. So the two people who were supposed to be making all this go smoothly, she's moved one of them, is under pressure to sack the other it's not yes. a great it's not a great position to be in. and just in terms of where does the blame line i mean the blame has been sort of spread all over the place there's the guy from rte who tweeted inaccurately what the wording of the agreement was going to say which led leo varadkar to go on an early victory lap to claim that it was a win for ireland which put the wind up the dup which meant that arlene foster got on the phone and interrupted like where does where does the blames lie yeah well, i mean it's 
it's probably fair to spread the blame widely because this um, because this issue is so diffuse and complicated. I mean, I wouldn't want to, to you know to pin the tail on any one particular donkey. But having said that, I think just to kind of take a step back into why this stuff is so complicated, Lucy kind of got at it there when she talked about the you know squaring off language with the DUP. Part of why this is so difficult and complicated is you have to go back. In Northern Ireland, on the island of Ireland, we're constantly going back to first principles. There was this argument yesterday about regulatory alignment. Has the DUP been told about regulatory alignment on the island of Ireland versus regulatory convergence or avoiding divergence? Bear in mind that the DUP and Sinn Féin, who are the two major parties in Northern Ireland, can't agree on what they call Northern Ireland. One of them refuses to say Northern Ireland. They were constantly in a war of, of terminology. These sensitivities are unbelievably difficult and complex. And actually, you know, is this a border in Ireland, in the island? Is it a border in Ireland or is it a border with Ireland? It's on, It's actually a border with both, if you see what I mean. It's so unbelievably complicated. And, and, and one of the, the difficult thing is that it's not just about the practicalities of the border. It's about how people feel in their heads. It's about the sense that people, if you're a nationalist in Northern Ireland, you don't want to be feel like you're being removed from other Irish people on the island of Ireland. But if you're a unionist, if you're a DUP voter or an Ulster Unionist voter, you don't want to feel like you're being removed from you know the rest of the United Kingdom and other British citizens. You mentioned yourself, Matt, that the RTE, uh, RTE commentator who got the wording wrong, it wasn't what he, what he tweeted out and told everyone was going to be in this 15-page draft text, um, was incorrect. And I, I do think there is some sense, I'm almost loath to say it, that a spotlight has to be shone on what very senior, prominent journalists, um, the, the incorrect information that was disseminated, and I think was you know obviously going to be picked up by Arlene Foster, DUP, and different players who then jumped to conclusions and got people's backs up, and that's made all the more important because it's so sensitive, um, as you say, Matthew. We'll come on in a minute to the the tribes that you've identified and the concerns that they have, but specifically on Brexit. I mean, there's no expectation that any of this will move public opinion on Brexit because ever since June the 23rd, 2016, public opinion on Brexit just hasn't shifted. Yeah, I think that's that's broadly right. Um, the public are pretty much st- still set where they were in, in two blocks. There's potentially some signs of, of Remainers becoming a bit more concerned about, about it, but but overall there's not really a great deal of, of sign that either Remainers or Leavers are, are, are changing their minds. There's not a great deal of support amongst Remainers for a second referendum um, for example, so it's going to, going to be difficult to come up with a, a solution that appeals to everybody and, and, and solves everyone's problems, as you were talking about, and you can see that in Northern Ireland specifically. What you do see, and sort of in terms of the wider political context, as with sort of so many other ratings pre and post the general election, you can see how confidence in Theresa May and ratings of Theresa May doing a good job on handling the Brexit negotiations um, have crashed um, since the election. They haven't got much worse since then, but they are kind of clearly a long way below where they were. That's probably harming um, the government's reputation as being seen as fit to govern and, and having a good team of leaders, um, for example. At the same time, confidence in Jeremy Corbyn to get a good deal is not really any higher either. No, and that is a concept, and we've seen it even this morning when the morning after the deal fell apart. There was nobody from the Labour Party out on any media attacking the government for for um, messing it up. Well, I'm sure the Ireland and Brexit is something that we'll, we'll come back to. But as we are talking about Jeremy Corbyn, uh, let's move on. And this is Lucy Fisher. Jeremy Corbyn's left-wing supporters have been accused of carrying out an aggressive purge of centrist councillors to put up their own candidates in local elections next year. 
This is simply a push towards greater democratization and accountability, as the left would have it, or an orchestrated bid to oust centrists from elected positions. This is a fascinating this story that you've been writing about in the Times this week. I mean, it's partly it's fascinating to me because while the country is gripped by this massive crisis that we've just been talking about in Brexit, the Labour Party is, is sort of obsessed again with its own internal machinations and and carrying out purges and coups and that sort of thing. J- just explain wh- where this is happening and why this is why this has been happening. Well, we've got um, a major set of local authority elections coming up in May. Lots of London boroughs uh, are up for re-election. So I think it's, it's natural that at the head of that, you've got to see candidates for those council seats um, either reconfirmed if they're sitting councillors and heretofore, you've usually seen, unless a councillor has been particularly invisible or lazy, most people, it's been the assumption that they would they would go on to kind of recontest their seat. Since, you know, Jeremy Corbyn did a lot better than everyone expected in the general election, um, I think there's this feeling that the left is in the ascendancy. Naturally, perhaps, they want to get their people into seats on the councils. So a, a key borough to look at is Haringey, where you've seen what centres have called an orchestrated purge. There have been um, around a dozen uh, or so people either ousted or pressurised to step down and not recontest their seats. And elsewhere, you've seen um, dotted around councillors deselected in wards such as Southwark, elsewhere in London, uh, in Manchester, in Sheffield, um, individuals um, pushed out where they've got a strong left-wing presence in, in, in their local ward party. And presumably, um, and it might be as a result of you reporting it, but th- there is a chance it more than follow in the other momentum groups in different parts of the country start thinking, well, we should be doing the same thing. Yes, it's, it's an interesting thing, actually. Um, when, when I did a story last week, which which made page one, um, I got a call from um, a senior centrist figure who said, well, I, I, that story is really annoying for us. And I'll tell you why. Because you make the left look so powerful that, that as ever in most political parties, there's a sort of a small percentage on one wing, um, another small percentage on the other kind of... A diametrically opposed wing and the vast kind of majority in the middle that will kind of look to see which way the wind blows. So you, by making the left look powerful like that, you know, people are likely to think it's a done deal and opportunistically thinking of their career will, will plump with them. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think we are going to see more of this as there are more c- candidate selections in councils, but also there are a number of constituencies where there isn't an incumbent Labour ca- uh, Labour. MP that are selecting their candidate for the next Westminster elections. So um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how this this wrangling plays out. Gideon, for, for people like you and people, well, people like me as well, local elections are, you know, they're second to a general election, but they're at least a, a good indicator of where public opinion is. And so the ones next year will be particularly hotly contested because it will be a test of whether or not Jeremy Corbyn's surge is growing or not and can he, you know... can continue that momentum with a small m? Uh, Yes, you'd like to think so. Of course, you look back at the local elections before the 2017 general election and they were pointing to sort of the Conservatives doing incredibly well, winning lots of seats from UKIP and and so on, which didn't necessarily last until the the big event itself. I mean, what's interesting uh, from a wider public opinion perspective are perceptions of the two main parties on being divided and extreme, which potentially some of this plays into. And so after Jeremy Corbyn um, was elected, there was a kind of big increase in the proportion of people who saw Labour as being divided um, and extreme. Uh, actually, in our most recent uh, poll just a couple of weeks ago, the proportion of people saying Labour as di- as divided has fallen from 82% to 62%. But more people now think the Tories are divided. 
Um, so the proportion of people saying the Tories are divided have gone up from 52% to 73%. So actually that mantle is now passed on to the Conservatives <laughs> as being divided. You imagine is around to do with Brexit and, and their difficulty since the election. What do you make of this, Matthew? The, the Do party leaders, when they're at the top, how much time do they spend worrying about what's going on in local council election selection? I think if they're wise about the structure of the power dynamics within their party, they probably pay quite a bit of attention to it within reason. Um, the thing that's interesting, I mean, Lucy's done some really obviously like extensive and good reporting on this. One of the things that's particularly relevant about um, London local authority elections is traditionally being a councillor in London is a stepping stone into Parliament. It's where lots of people who work in politics in London make their first move in elective politics. So, in a sense, there you know being a local councillor in Highgate or Southwark is it's a kind of amplified relevance to the national scene than perhaps in Barnsley. No offence to Barnsley. Um, but the other point that's interesting is this thing about, which you both mentioned actually, which is about, you know, and you mentioned Matt, which is about Labour, um, you know, Brexit happening, um, this enormous national debate, crisis, call it what you want to call it, adventure, opportunity. Um, but <laughs> I think you've ticked all the boxes. All those boxes, whichever, tick, whichever one you prefer, you know, as delete as required. Um, but the Labour Party itself is still kind of in large part focused on this on this internal debate. That's one, because obviously there is a battle going on for the soul of the Labour Party and the kind of philosophical, theological direction it takes. But also actually because there's probably a kind of implicit acknowledgement that at this stage, you know, even at the leadership levels, they're probably quite happy for the government to you know, go through its Brexit struggles and Labour doesn't have to stake too strong a position. That may be why they opted not to put anyone up in the media this morning. Well, I mean, there is also a sense that, I mean, on not just the Irish problem, but on lots of the questions about Brexit, it's really hard to see the solution in these current circumstances where the DUP are, you know, propping up the government. How do you keep Ireland? You know, there is an actual physical problem there to which there isn't an obvious answer. And unless the Labour Party suddenly comes up with a brainwave and thinks it's going to get the credit for it, just sitting it out politically might make sense. Whether or not it makes you look like a government in waiting is another question. Yeah, and I think, interestingly, the flip side of that, I've been fascinated um, to to hear a growing chorus among Conservative MPs who think, gosh, Brexit is going to be a disaster for us. It might be, you know, it might be desirable to allow Labour to come in, them to be tainted with any fallout that, you know, occurs because of Brexit. Uh, and then we can sweep back into power, you know, after a period of renewal in uh, in like opposition. 90, just like 97. <laughs> yes. We'll be back in no time. Yes. I think we just need a bit of time in opposition. Yeah, and I, I, and I think that that is... Um, it's extraordinary how that's become a sort of um, a meme in, in Westminster. And I think it's um, incredibly misguided on the part of any Conservative who thinks that they would uh, be able to take just uh, a few years out and, and come back in. But it does point to, as you say, there being no clear solutions to many of the key problems um, presented by Brexit. And just before we move on, you've also written in The Times this week about um, it's not just happening in the Labour Party. The Tory party have been having a little purge of their own. Oh, absolutely. Um, and in, in uh, Kensington and Chelsea Council, which has obviously um, been the centre of a lot of controversy following the um, inferno that uh, engulfed Grenfell Tower in June and killed more than 70 people, um, a lot of the, the failings uh, in the Tory-led council there uh, have meant it's it's gone a lot of attention. Um, the latest uh, there is that they too have been subject to, to a purge, uh, alleged purge, I should say, by an autocratic leadership 
clique, the critics are saying. Uh, they've deselected the only black Conservative councillor in the borough, um, which is not a great look. It's a woman called Eve Allison, who in fact her ward neighbours um, the ward in which Grenfell Tower is. She's been a really visible presence on, on the ground there. Um, and she's not the only one. It's sort of six councillors altogether, another 10 or so have been pressurised to, to not stand again or have decided to not sta- stand again. So you're right to flag that it's not just in Labour that there can be kind of internal power plays uh, in local parties. It's, it's, it's happening in the Conservatives in the heart of London too. And do you think that this is a, a specifically Kensington issue just because of the fact the council was widely seen not to have handled the Grenfell fallout particularly well? Well, I think that that's obviously put a lot of pressure uh, and a lot of scrutiny on, on the council. Um, I've spoken to a number of, of senior figures in, in, the, in the council in, in recent days who've um, who've mainly pointed to the way it's been run for for a longer time, actually. As I said, they've kind of um, alleged that it's been autocratic, um, run in quite a dogmatic way. There have been personal fallings out with the leadership. So like all these things, especially at a more local level, I think personality can play a part too. Yeah, sometimes we can be trying to impose, well, this is a big struggle over, you know, trident policy or whatever it might be, and actually just it's because there's six people who really hate each other and somebody's managed to, to force them out. Well, it's interesting. I'm sure we'll, it's something we'll come back to um, in the run-up to the local elections. But let's move on, though. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Talk about this, really interesting, this. This is Gideon Skinner and the five tribes in Britain today. Ipsos Mori's Issues Index has been tracking Britain's top concerns for over 40 years. This year, we've carried out new analysis to split the public into five tribes, depending on the issues that are closest to their hearts. These five groups are first, the young, urban and unengaged. Second, bothered by Brexit. Third, those with traditional misgivings. Fourth, public service warriors. And five, the hyper-concerned. Now, I think this is fascinating. I've written about this in the Red Box email this week. Um, the hyper-concerned, I think, are possibly my favourite because there's not many of them and they're just worried about everything. The whole world is going to cave in around their ears. If you put them to one side, I think you said it made about 4% of them. What I thought was interesting was the other groups are roughly about 
one in five, one in four people. Yes, that's right. I mean, very briefly about the hyper-concerned, interesting to see that that's uh, where many Redbox listeners are <laughs> and, and probably where many of us in this room are as well. So it's always just a good reminder to think about how unusually weird um, those of us who think about politics on a regular basis are. But yes, the, the other groups are interesting. They're broadly split out into into four different groups. Again, with any analysis of this, it's important to remember that you know none of these are absolutely set in stone. It's not just that if you're, you're not only allowed to be worried about one thing. People are more complicated uh, than that. There's lots of different issues that, that people are worried about. But yes, you kind of you see a young urban group who are kind of less interested in politics generally, um, less interested in any concerns. What they are worried about is a bit more around unemployment and housing, which kind of makes sense given what we know about concerns about the millennial generation. Um, you have one group called Bothered by Brexit who are really worried about Brexit. So eight in ten of them put, put Brexit as one of their top issues facing facing the country. Interestingly, that's leavers and remainers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you get people on both both sides of, of the divide there. So you've kind of got sort of um, sort of more graduates, more middle class people who are like, more likely to be remainers there, but also kind of older people, men and people outside London who are more likely to be leavers. You've got a group of public service warriors who are um, more more female, um, more middle aged, more middle class. They are worried about Brexit, but they're also particularly worried about the NHS and education. And then you've got a, a core group of, of those we've called traditional misgivings who are older, uh, again, a bit more female, less likely to have qualifications, to have formal qualifications. They're actually less worried about Brexit, um, but much more concerned about both the NHS and immigration is a real key issue for them. And uh, the, the point I tried to make when I wrote about it in Red Box was if the country is sort of splitting five ways, and it, what was interesting was not that many of them were more likely to be Labour or Tories, that, that seems quite finely balanced as well. So how does a political party go about building the coalition that you need to win an election if the groups are, if the country is splitting five ways and but the election is split two ways? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, these, these are, what we're measuring here is how important these issues are. So, for example, even our regular polling, we find that actually there's no difference between Conservative and Labour supporters about their concern about the NHS. You know, it's, it's not that Labour supporters are the only ones who are worried about, about the NHS. The difference, of course, might be what they think should be done about it. And it's the Conservative policies that appeal to that to the Conservative groups and the Labour policies who appeal to the to the Labour groups. So, yes, it's a, it's a challenge. There's never a, a kind of a single uh, silver bullet that would solve that for political parties because otherwise everyone would be doing it. But, yes, you you, you, you try to build a, a coalition that, that meets many of those um meets many of those issues and appreciates that, again, you can't just put anybody in very simple boxes and say you're only worried about that and, and that people are purely rational and kind of computing machines. And we saw it a bit, didn't we, Lucy, after the Brexit results, there was this slight tendency to say, well, everyone who voted for Leave is just worried about immigration, so whoever's got the best line on immigration will hoover up all of those. And actually what we saw... Was it although the UKIP vote went down, it seemed to split almost fifty-fifty towards Tories and Labour in lots of seats. And actually, you know, it turns out people are more complicated than that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and I think you put your finger on one of the key incorrect assumptions that led people to, to predict the snap election so wrongly. People thought all the UKIP voters, four million of them, would go to the Tories. And actually, as you say, many many went to Labour with a very fudged line on on Brexit and single market membership and and whatnot in its manifesto. Can I ask you a question? In, in light of um, the Social Mobility Commission sort of collapsing over the weekend with the board walking out, and yesterday Joseph Roundtree Foundation um, released a, port, a report showing that um, 
poverty is rising among pensioners, um, among children. In-work poverty is up to kind of one in eight. How much do people care about poverty? I, when I was reading your fascinating research, kind of as, as Matt had kind of distilled it through Redbox um, email bulletin this morning, it didn't seem to focus very, feature very highly. And I wondered, do people ever look outside their own concerns about the worst of in society? It seemed to be a much more focus of David Cameron's government than Theresa May's. So it's, it is there. Um, it is kind of probably general concern is higher than it would have been 10, 20 years ago. So it's sort of, it's, it's there on, under the radar. It's not a big ticket issue like NHS, immigration or, or Brexit. And it is more important to to younger groups and to and to Labour supporters much more than Conservative supporters. So it is one where there is a difference. Yeah, people are worried. Um, you know, we, again, you go back to what was happening during the twenty seventeen campaign, and one of the things we found was rising concern about austerity. There is more concern. Just year the each extra year of concern, of, of the austerity is going on. Um, we found that more people now are worried about the impact of austerity on those who are who are vulnerable, who are unable to to help themselves. So you, you do see that having an impact, and that probably was one of the factors that was playing an impact in in twenty seventeen as well. And to some extent, is poverty? Do you think a, a sort of poverty or inequality is a sort of abstract concept beloved by politicos? Whereas if someone is concerned about it, they might voice it through as being concerned about unemployment or wages or welfare or homelessness. So so the way that this this particular survey works is that um, we don't prompt people. So we've been been doing it the same way since uh, September 1974. So we don't give people a list. We just say, what is the most important issue facing Mm -hmm. the country? And we allow people to come up with it themselves so you know you're only really going to get the ones that are very top of mind but again on some of those things we've got international data and we can compare where britain is compared with other countries and um so internationally the big issues are unemployment corruption and poverty and inequality comes up third um in britain we are less worried about unemployment, less worried about corruption than many other countries around the world, slightly less worried about poverty and inequality. We're sort of mid-table on that. We are more worried about issues like healthcare, mm. like immigration, like terrorism and extremism than many other countries. Has concern about immigration changed since this time last year? So we, we've seen uh, it, where immigration is in this issues index, so in terms of the priorities facing Britain, we have seen it come down. At the same time, obviously, we've seen concern about Brexit go up and, and, and clearly immigration is, is tied into that to some extent. So, yes, there, there, but there, there have been some changes since then. I think this is I think one of the one of the things that this one of the reasons this is, is very interesting is that what's becoming increasingly clear is that the referendum didn't solve that much other than answering the very specific question that the UK will leave the European Union. Therefore, it's kind of incumbent on basically every politician in the country, you know, everyone who sort of writes things about politics in some way is thinking about how, you know, how to make sense of this, um, how to make sense of the, of the referendum result. And I do think it's useful because we're going to be talking about this. We're going to be, you know, the government itself is obviously, you know, trying to get the best possible deal. There are arguments about whether um, their stated aims are deliverable, reconcilable with e-reality. But at the same time, actually, given that we're going to be talking about this for years to come, given there are going to be choices and trade-offs for years and years to come, actually being able to think about the electorate as not just these kind of monolithic tribes of leave and remain is quite a useful way of hopefully helping us unpack particular challenges and particular issues, you know, if you know, that might have helped the government, for example, back down compromise on red lines that have already been set over the course of the past year. 
Yeah, and we see that in other data, in other research that we've done, um, when we've tried to look at that, you know, what has Brexit revealed about divides in opinion? So, for example, on something like nostalgia and wanting the country to be like the way it used to be and, and on attitudes of immigration, actually you do see that kind of whether you're a Remainer or a Leaver yeah. is probably more important than whether you're a Conservative or Labour. But that doesn't happen on every issue. So, for example, on attitudes towards equal opportunity and, and social yeah, equality versus kind of same levels of opportunity but 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 um maybe kind of receiving what you've what you've worked worked for they're actually the difference between remain leave is is not so great the traditional party differences there are are still clear so you know it's not just one access mm. uh, i think i was going to like a good hackneyed columnist i was just going to make loop this back into what we were talking about at the beginning my hobby horse which is this thing about northern ireland one of the things that i think people so a lot of people who left northern ireland to make their careers elsewhere used to one of the kind of cliches we used to say is that at some point Northern Ireland will catch up with the rest of the world we didn't think that the rest of the world would catch up with Northern Ireland certainly that <laughs> seems to be what's happening um, in the UK at the minute of the rest of the UK and I think what Giles's research is helpful in doing is preventing us from falling into this trap of thinking about leave and remain tribes part of you know part of the challenge for the UK is going to be Northern Ireland is still in these tribes and that's that's right at the centre now of, the, of the, the Brexit difficulties is, you know, there was a peace agreement which helped kind of dissolve some of, not all of, the, the challenge of tribalism in Northern Ireland. It's very important that as we deal with the broader challenges, we don't completely sort of ossify into these tribes of leave and remain and they all think one thing and everyone else thinks something different. Well, as you've rounded it off perfectly, that seems like a good um, place to leave it. Um, just because Gideon mentioned it, we we had a poll in the Red Box email asking which uh, tribes readers thought they were in. Uh, 49% of the, the biggest group are bothered by Brexit, followed by 34% are hyper-concerned. So um, they might be a very small group in the public, but they all seem to be Red Box. Um, I'm very pleased to see that young, urban and unengaged is only 5%, because it'd be odd if you were unengaged in politics, but reading an email about politics. Uh, 7% public service warriors and 6% have traditional misgivings. Uh, that's all we've got time for this week. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device and sign up to my daily morning email with lots of excellent polling and research and things uh, like the, the piece on the tribes. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, from Lucy Fisher, Gideon Skinner, Matthew O'Toole and me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.